This is Pastor Brian Wolfmiller from Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado. I had the privilege of traveling to Elgin, Illinois, to talk to uh, the congregation there about suffering. This is part three of that lecture, which is Suffering for God, where we consider the rise of the persecution of the church and how the church suffers uh, at the hands of evildoers and does so patiently uh, with the hope of Jesus and his cross and resurrection. Well, we've got to get, get moving a little bit because we have only 55 minutes left, I think. Ah! Is that not the case? At some point, I have to fly out of here, and so we have to stop eventually uh, to make it home. So we'll, uh, we had a couple questions during the break, so we'll t- take those up and kind of move quickly. I, I, we do want to talk about persecution. Um, but maybe one thing really quickly, thanks for the support for the Luther Academy. I was able to go. Luther Academy is a really uh, important institution in that what it does is it, 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 it says that our most important resource is not our wealth, but rather our theology. And so it wants to take our doctrine and spread it throughout the world. So a lot of mission work is to, you know, you're spreading wealth throughout the world, so, you know, you're trying to send people support and money and this sort of thing. The Luther Academy doesn't do that at all. It says we, we, uh, we want to send our teaching out there. And so they have um, Luther Academy fellows, which have parts of the world kind of assigned to them, and they will go and put on conferences for the pastors and for the people in, in these countries all over the world. Um, my professor uh, and Pastor Beschel's professor, Pless, has been involved at the Luther Academy and especially with the work that they're doing in Madagascar. And so I was able to go two summers ago to Madagascar. We are able to have a conference every summer, although I don't know how often I'll be able to go, but every few years I'll be able to go and teach. We had 19 pastors come from all over. Just incredible. Got to teach them about the conscience and a lot about the Heavenly Council kind of stuff. And they... <clears throat> They, they, they loved it. They just stay and teach us. They don't, they don't have the Book of Concord translated into Malagasy all the way. They're working on it, but they have like the Augsburg Confession. And the church is 150 years old. It's four times as big as the Missouri Synod. They don't have the Book of Concord. So they're trying to be faithful pastors. They love the doctrine, but they just, unless they're learning English, they don't have access to it. So it's really a wonderful sort of organization, and the work that they're doing is really wonderful. So, so thanks for the support. Uh, that's great. Um, a, a couple of points to clean up from the last couple of sessions. One is it was mentioned by a handful of you that uh, that Job believed in the resurrection. And that's not only seen implicitly in his children. You know, remember how he had double children, but he had, didn't have them back in this life. He would receive them back in the next life. But it's taught explicitly in Job chapter 19, which is the, uh, that's where Job quotes the hymn, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he sings that Easter hymn. No, the hymn is based on that text from Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. And though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I will see him. Uh, it's one of the clearest texts. You know, there are people will argue that the resurrection was not taught in the Old Testament. This is simply not true. Uh, that's, this is probably one of the, most cl- the clearest verses. Job says, Oh, that my words were inscribed with an iron pin on a rock. Because I know that my Redeemer lives. And even though I die, yet I will see him. My flesh shall see him and not another. Oh, how my heart leaps within me, he said. <laughs> so that Job, in the midst of all of his suffering, knows that all this will be made right in the resurrection. And we have that same hope. You know, when the Bible talks over and over about the resurrection, 
uh, it talks about our hope in the resurrection. And this, this is what drives us forward. And remember that our resurrection, you know, sometimes we think that when we're resurrected, it'll be a different body. Well, now think about that. If our resurrection was of a different body, then what would the disciples have found in the tomb when they went to see Jesus? His old body, right? But what's resurrected? That body, the same body that's buried. So that your body will be renewed. And the picture that the scripture has, 1 Corinthians 15, is of a plant and then a flower. So if you want to, you know, next time when your Easter lilies die, just dig up an Easter lily and you look at it and it's like something from outer space. It's like a kind of, it looks like, like a brain and a dirty funnel cake all kind of mashed together. Like that is disgusting. Well, that's a picture of your body now. <laughs> and the Easter lily, that's your body in the resurrection. But they're, this, they're, they're bound up to each other. This is really quite wonderful. Now, um, a couple of you asked about, especially with this verse in Hebrews, how is it that the Lord disciplines us? And you say, Pastor, in your first section, you said that God doesn't punish sin. And then you say God does punish sin. So, so which is, this is very, very important. And I'm glad that that question came up. Uh, when we say that God does not have, uh, he's, he's not punishing our sin, that is to say that he does not have wrath over our sin. That when we suffer because of our sin, we are not suffering God's anger. You know, so some of you have been parents and you know what it is to discipline in anger and you know what it is to discipline in love. You know the difference? So that God is not angry with us. He loves us. Now, this verse is hard for some people, especially if their parents were uh, very, very strict and unloving disciplinarians. And they hear this verse and like God is like that. No, we remember that just because someone has an office doesn't mean they can't sin. So just because parents... Um, have the authority to discipline the children doesn't mean that every time parents discipline their children, it's good. That's, that's, uh, that's, in fact, the worst sins that we often commit are sins that we commit in office. That's like saying, well, because I'm a pastor, I have the authority to teach, but that doesn't mean that I can't say anything wrong. Or the government has the authority to go to war, but that means that every time the government goes to war, they're doing good. So just because you have the authority to do something doesn't mean that you're always right in the exercise of that authority. And that's also true of our earthly parents. They have the authority to discipline and train us, but, uh, but that does not mean that every time they discipline and train us that it's, that it's right. Now, in the word discipline, the word there is uh, paideos, which is where we get pedagogy. Uh, do we still use that? Is pedagogy a word that we use? In other words, training up of children. And we see it a little bit in the English connection between the word discipline and disciple. That Jesus had his disciples. That means they were under his discipline or under his, his training. He was training them up. And it just so happens that um, some things we, are, we learn through hearing, but other things we just have to learn through doing. And patience, for example, is not something that you can learn through instruction, at least not through verbal instruction. It's very, very difficult to learn patience by me just telling you, okay, uh, when you start to get angry, count to ten or whatever, to try to, you know, to try to teach someone patience. The way that you end up learning patience is through enduring things so that the Lord is training us. Uh, both through teaching us in the Word, but also through the difficulties of this life. 
It says in Hebrews that Christ, the Son, even though he was perfect, was made complete through suffering. Now imagine that. That there was something that Jesus himself, in his human nature, couldn't know apart from enduring all kinds of suffering. And that's also true for us. You, you see, that there's some things that are just crafted in us through our uh, difficulties. Now, we know that almost instinctively. I mean, when you think back on the most important moments of your life, those times, if I just say, hey, can you think back on when you learned something really profoundly, when you finally understood something completely or something like that? How many of those moments didn't have suffering involved in them? I mean, right? Or when you think back on your best teachers, how many of you thought that you're, at the time that your best teachers were your easiest teachers? And now you look back and you realize that your best teachers were your hardest teachers. The ones that made you suffer. <laughs> right? And we realize that, in fact, this suffering is the way that the Lord is training us and shaping us. Now, when we say that the, the suffering of the Lord is the punishment for sin, we're not saying it's the punishment, uh, it's, the, it's the experience of his wrath or his anger, but rather he's shaping us, uh, to, he's shaping us in this life. He's training us. He's, he's, um, he's helping us. Uh, so that there's, so when, and I suppose that we, in our discipline for the children, have these combined, but the Lord separates them. So, you know, when, when one of my kids pokes another one of my kids in the eye, well, one, they get punished for doing that thing that was wrong. But second, they get punished to remember not to do it again whenever their brother's eye comes around their finger, you know. So you have two purposes. One is to punish the sin and the other is to train up in righteousness, right? And this is the, these two things are separate for the Lord. So it's not, to, it's not, to, uh, it's not that he, he's visiting us with anger, but rather he's training us for godliness in the future. Now, there's one more thing to say about that. There are earthly consequences to our sin. So, for example, if on the way to the airport this afternoon, uh, Pastor Bestrel and I stop over and rob a bank, chances are pretty good that we're going to end up in the jail, right? We're going we're to suffer the temporal consequences of our sin, right? Now, does that mean that we're going to go to hell, to the eternal prison? Well, hopefully the Lord preserves our faith through that. Uh, but you still have temporal consequences of the sin. And that's true in this life. Uh, there's temporal consequences to sin. Uh, and yet, we, even though we suffer those temporal consequences to sin, we know that, um, that we still have the forgiveness of sins. It, this sometimes gets muddled up, you know, when pe- people come to confession because they hear, I confess my sin, and you receive the Lord's forgiveness but then you also are turning yourself over to suffer man's punishment. <laughs> and those two things really go together in our Christian life. So we're suffering the temporal consequence of our sin and we're, and we're not suffering, suffering the eternal consequence of our sin. Both. Does that make some sense? Now, there's one more thing here. And that is that when we say that, we're puni- that God punishes sin, a lot of times we are trying to draw a line from a particular sin to a particular punishment. Okay? So, so here's some sort of suffering. 
And we say, okay, why did we suffer this sort of thing? And we're trying to draw this line to a particular sin. Now, when it comes to temporal consequences, we can do this. Why are Pastor Bestrel and I in jail? Because we robbed a bank. Right? I mean, so that you can draw the, the line there. But most of the time in this life, this line does not exist, nor should it exist. In other words, why did I get a brain tumor? Was it because uh, I didn't pay my taxes in 1973? I, I, this is what, you know, one of the things when you're dying, the devil has stored up all these sins. And he kind of has put them in his back pocket. And now when you start to get toward your deathbed, he starts to pile them all back on. Well, it's a horrifying thing to see. I remember, I, you know, so we're there and, and there's, we're in the deathbed and we're clearing out sins that are 85, 92 years old. These old sins, you know. I mean, like pre-adolescent stuff. And now it's coming back at the end. Whoo-hoo! And we start to, this is always, you know, how it goes. Well, uh, am I, is this bad thing happening to me because I did this other thing? Did I get in a car accident because I was rude to my mom? You know, this, we always are trying to draw the line. But this line, recognize, goes through the cross. And the only one who can draw the line between a specific sin and a specific suffering the only ones that can do that theologically are the prophets. And we don't have prophets anymore. The prophets could come to Israel and say, hey, the, the Assyrians are going to come and they're going to kill you and deport you and do all this sort of stuff because you're sacrificing uh, to Molech or whatever. So they could connect the dots between the suffering, the punishment and the sin. But we don't have that anymore. Now, now uh, so don't do that. Do not, do not connect the dots between your suffering and your sins. You can't. Don't. But this is what you can do. When your mind does this automatically, which it does, doesn't it? When something bad happens to you, you kind of roll through all your most recent sins to try to figure out which is the worst. <laughs> does that happen to you or is it, am I now? Maybe I shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> you roll through your catalog of sins and you're like, oh man, I wonder what the Lord is punishing me for. Now you realize, now you realize though, when you think, oh, it must be this sin or what that sin, then you realize that you have a sin that is not dealt with. That's troubling you. In other words, you realize what's troubling your conscience and now you know what to confess on Sunday. Or now, what you, now you know what to tell your pastor when you go to absol- confession and absolution. You see? In other words, when your, when your imagination automatically connects the dots between your suffering and your sins, then you realize that ah, here is a sin that's troubling my conscience and it needs to be dealt with. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's, uh, okay. Suffering, uh, let's see. Suffering, okay, I'm on, I'm on the page with E on it. Suffering and sanctification. Right underneath that, I just want to point this out. We've got to move a little bit fast. So, so I don't. I should have put page numbers. Do you see, uh, e suffering and sanctification. The Bible puts suffering central to our Christian life. Take up your cross. I forgot to put the second verse. Then under that, what makes a theologian? Martin Luther, our friend Martin Luther, said that there's three things that make a theologian. Uh, and he, he did this in his introduction to Psalm 119, and they are in the Latin oratio meditatio and tentatio. Now, that means, oratio means prayer, meditatio means meditation, and uh, tentatio means suffering. 
Now, in the medieval church, the monks said the three things that make a theologian are oratio, meditatio, and contemplatio. Contemplation. So you, you read the scriptures, you pray, and then you meditate. I, I mean, you, you contem- you, you're trying to ascend through your aesthetic work. You're trying to ascend into the vision of God. That's what, that's what they said. But, but, but Luther says, no, it's not prayer, meditation, and contemplatio. It's prayer, meditation, and tentatio, suffering. Oh, Luther, can't we be monks? That would have been nicer, you know, sitting there having the vision of the glory of God. Luther says, no, that's not what makes you a theologian. What makes you a theologian is your suffering. The greatest theological professor, says Luther, is the devil who comes along and tightens the screws on you and forces you to trust in God. So look at these verses in Psalm. Oh, these are great. Psalm 119. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 71. It's good for me that I was afflicted, (laughs) that I might learn your statutes. Or at the end, Psalm 119, verse 15. Uh, I was using this verse, by the way, for all my homebound visits this week. It's beautiful. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise, your word, your gospel gives me life. Now, think of Job. They were trying to, his friends were trying to pull him away from the gospel. And he, he said, no, no, my comfort in all of my suffering is God's word. Now, This pushes us to suffering and hope and suffering and joy. Now, I'm going to go to the next page and look at this Romans 5 verse. Please put a star next to this verse. This is going to be really the key verse for suffering. This is where Paul is going to outline this. And he says this. We rejoice in our suffering. You say, Paul, are you nuts? You rejoice in suffering? And he says, yes, we rejoice in suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that the Lord intends with our suffering to walk us down the path of patience, character, and hope. Do you see that? Now, the devil, of course, uses our suffering to attack our hope. So the devil would push us. You see how the devil would have us go from suffering to impatience and impatience to lack of character and lack of character to despair. You see that? But the Holy Spirit is bringing us the other direction. Now, can you think of Paul? You know, remember Paul? He had all sorts of crazy stuff happen to him. I mean, he really got hammered because he was a Christian and, a, and an apostle. And, but let's just pretend that you are Paul's enemy and you want him to, you want to get after him. You're like, okay, here's Paul. I hate Paul. I'm going to do bad things to Paul. So let's cause him to suffer. And he says, I rejoice in suffering. Great. That's not going to do any good. Okay, so then they say, well, you know, we want to kill him. And Paul says, to live is Christ. Oh, great. Well, okay. oh, wait, no, no, he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So what are you going to do if you're Paul's enemy? You're going to kill him? You're going to cause him to suffer? He's rejoicing in all of it. I guess we'll just leave him alone. 
<laughs> well, fine. <laughs> he doesn't mind that either. He'll go preach the gospel some more. And this is how it is with the Christian. That, that, that what, can, what can the devil do to you? I mean, do, hand you over to suffering? We say with Paul, I, re, I find joy in my suffering. Hand you over to death? And you say, death is finally a friend because Christ has died and is raised. So to die is to be with him. This is really quite amazing. So that now, as a Christian, we're able to receive the suffering of this life as a gift. Now, look at these last verses. I think we just want to, I want you to hear these verses. Uh, because it, it talks about having joy in suffering, and, and it's really quite amazing. 2 Corinthians 12, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Colossians 1.4 I now rejoice in my suffering for your sake. In my flesh, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is the church. My suffering is for your sake. 1 Peter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Peter 4, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. (laughs) Do you see that? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So someone comes along and they say, oh, you're one of those cursed Christians. And you say, oh, thank you. We were looking at this psalm uh, the other day, and David prays, How long will they turn my glory into shame? Now, this is getting into what we want to talk about next. How long will they turn my glory into shame? Now, do you see how that goes? That, that's really the persecution of the church. Because what is your glory? Christ. Your baptism. The gift of faith. And yet, what does the Lord, sorry, what does the world do with that glory, with that thing that is most precious to you? It makes it something you're supposed to be ashamed of. Oh, you're a Christian? Yeah. I mean, it should be that people should come up to you and say, and say, oh, you've been baptized? Like, you've been to the Olympics? (laughs) Wow, what was it like? That must be amazing to be baptized, to be adopted into the family of God. That's incredible. I'm hoping that someday I'll be baptized too, but I'm not baptized yet. You know, this, I mean, it would be like, uh, I, I don't know, what's something that people consider glorious? Uh, driving a Jaguar. Oh, you got a Jaguar? That's a pretty fancy car. Look at that. You know, you're showing it off. You're saying, hey, look, you know, it's a... It look, if you look at it this way, it looks purple, and this way it looks black. It's pretty cool, you know. This is my glory. And I, well, I hope someday I'm going to have such a nice car. This is how people should. This is how we should be about our baptisms. Whoa, you're baptized? Wow, pretty, uh, pretty cool. But the world insults us for that. That thing, you're a Christian. Whew. They try to turn our glory into our shame. And yet, Peter says, when you're cursed for being a Christian, remember that it's a blessing. Oh, you're baptized? I'm baptized. Oh, you're a Christian? I'm a Christian. And it comes to us as a as a gift, as a blessing. See it? The spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
Don't let any suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, which seems a little bit out of place on the list. Don't be a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or also don't meddle. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. but Let him glorify God in that name of Christian. So that now, because Christ has suffered for us, we receive suffering as a gift, as a treasure, as a joy. I mean, we realize, for example, it seems like quite a shameful thing to be, to be mocked in public, and yet Jesus was mocked, so now it's a treasure for us. Or it seems quite a wicked sort of thing to be buried in the ground, but Jesus was buried in the ground. And if it's good enough for Jesus, then so it is for the Christian. You see? And Jesus suffered. Uh, one, of the, one of the theological marks of... Um, one of the connections that the Bible will make is this. Is that you become like what you worship. Now, this is used by the prophets and David and stuff to mock the people that worship the idols, right? Because if you, if you worship the idol that is, that is blind, then what happens to you? You become blind. If you worship the idol that's mute, what happens? You, you become mute. You, you don't have anything helpful to say. See? Or you worship the idols that are dead and you also become dead. You, you, in other words, there's, there's this kind of... There's this kind of um, you, you become shaped into the character of your God. Now, this is something that we have to watch out for with the, with the worship of uh, evolution, right? Because when you, when you are an evolutionist, what's your God? Strength. The survival of the fittest. You start to worship fitness. Not in the sense of like going to the CrossFit, but that can be manifest that way. But, you know, you start to worship fitness in the, in the, in the realm of strength. And so if that's how you worship, then what, what are you about? You're about now strength. When you become, you know, uh, Hitler or whatever. In other words, that you're, you're exercising your strength and, and, bring, and you're bringing out death. So you become like uh, uh, the, the God that you worship. Well, look, we're Christians, which means we worship the God who suffered. So that we now have a willingness to receive suffering from God's hand as part of our life. And it doesn't take away our joy, our faith, our hope, our love, any of it. See? Now, I think, Jesus, remember how Jesus says, they will know you are Christians by your love? That love is the mark that identifies the Christian? And this is true. And I think that the second mark is going to be also very true for, our, for the church, as it has in the past been. They will know you are Christian by your suffering. By your willingness to stand and suffer, which has to do now with the last part, which is suffering for God or a readiness for persecution. Now, we have we have in the church been saying, hey, this is coming. Persecution is coming. We've not really known what it's going to look like, but now it's starting to uh, manifest itself and it's coming very, very quickly. So we want to start with the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10. Oh, wait a minute. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. This is the last of the uh, Beatitudes. And then, and then the conclusion to the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, remember, there's nine Beatitudes and they all begin this way. Blessed are those like the psalm. Blessed is the man. Blessed are those. But then when Jesus has spoken the nine Beatitudes, he's going to conclude and he's going to change. Look, it's right here. He says, blessed are you. So, So there's something really quite incredible. Blessed are those. It's like Jesus is talking about something else. But then Jesus comes at the end and he says, but remember, I'm talking about you guys. Blessed are you. And then what is your blessedness? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, boy. Jesus, is there any other option? Could you give us a blessing not for being reviled and persecuted and uttered all kinds of evil against? Answer, no. (laughs) No. This is your blessing to be reviled and persecuted. This is your inheritance from Jesus in this earth. Now, Jesus, in Matthew 24, it's the, oh, what is that called? We call that the Olivet Discourse. It's Holy Tuesday. Jesus is with his disciples on top of the Mount of Olives. They just walked by the temple, and the disciples said, whoa, look how big these rocks are. And Jesus says, yeah, they're not going to stand on top of each other for very long. So they said, well, when is this going to be? And when's the end of the world? And Jesus begins that whole discussion by saying, okay, these things are going to happen, and the end is not yet. Now, that's very important. Jesus says, you're going to see all these things happen and you're going to think it's the end of the world. But these are signs that it's not the end of the world. And what are the signs? Nation will rise against nation. So the first is wars. You'll be brought into the synagogue and they will drag you before the uh, before the council and they will abuse you. So the second mark is persecution. And then the gospel will be preached in all the world. The end is not yet, Jesus says. So that there's a, so Jesus says, how is it going to be simply from this point until the end? And he says it's marked by three things. Nation against nation, war. Nation against church, persecution. Church to the nations, preaching the gospel. And that's the structure. Now, we, we always want to say, hey, there's wars. That means a sign of the end. But in fact, every time we see a war, we have to say, oh, it's not a sign of the end. The end is not yet. That's what Jesus says. It, okay. So that there's always going to be persecution of the church. Now, the, the persecution to the, of the church is coming in our day specifically on two, on two fronts. And it is the front of secularism and the front of Islam. There's always, if you just want to see where the worst, the, where the most bloodshed has been in the history of the world, just look at the border of Islam. As Islam expanded throughout the world and was retracted, that, that's just a, it's always been incredibly bloody, the worst place to be. And it's happening now, uh, you know, as Islam is expanding, uh, you know, in, in, especially in Iraq and Syria through uh, uh, Al-Qaeda and also ISIS. And you see it also in Africa. All the countries that, are, uh, that are, have civil war and the worst stuff is where Islam is spreading. So you had traditionally Christian countries. Now Islam is spreading down to Africa. I remember... Mm, Eight years ago when I was in South Africa, and this was right kind of before the Second World War started, and they, they were all just watching this border come down through the continent of Africa, like this is just growing, all being funded really by Saudi money, and they just build mosques and expand. 
and there's war all the way down. And they were watching it, and they said when the second Gulf War started, then it just stopped because now the money had to be refocused. But you just kind of see that. that and, uh, and so we've seen these horrible pictures of our brothers and sisters in Christ being beheaded. That's, uh, that's what Jesus is talking about here. And then the same thing is true with secularism. Now, when secularism shapes itself into an ideology like it did in the Soviet Union or like it did in, um, in socialist Germany under the uh, National Socialist Party, uh, then you see that, 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 uh, that death comes to, especially to the Christians uh, and to those who have the Ten Commandments, to those who would stand up for an ordered world. And that's especially what happened to the Jewish people uh, in Germany. Uh, in China also, where, that, uh, where atheism became the ideology, you see the severe persecution of the church. So that the 20th century was probably the bloodiest century for the church in the history of the New Testament era. Uh, now, we were insulated from that in large degree because there's a kindness that exists between the church and kind of Western thought. Uh, but that has been eroding, and you guys know this. I mean, it's been eroding under our feet, and so the persecution of the church is drawing nearer. The, the shedding of blood persecution of the church. So we got a little bit of taste of it, like in Columbine, for example, when, which was right down the street from uh, me in Colorado, even though I wasn't there yet, but the, the guys were specifically targeting a couple of people who were Christian. We saw it again in Oregon when this... Uh, uh, a crazy guy uh, came into the classroom and was asking people to confess their faith so that he could assassinate them and murder them. Uh, and so these are, these are really the borders of the church. Now, it used to be that the old atheists, the old secularists, thought that Christianity was wrong. But the new atheists have upped the ante and they think that Christianity is dangerous. So there's a growing thought amongst secularists that Christianity is a dangerous ideology and has to be overcome legally. That's right. That's right. And where this is coming, where, where this is trying to uh, push itself onto the church with a, with, a, with a great force is around the question of um, uh, homosexual marriage and the redefinition of marriage. This whole marriage debate is not so much about homosexuality as it is about marriage itself. And what, how does marriage affect and how does it shape society? Uh, the two books, there's, I'm working on a couple of books. There's a couple of nice books about this argument. But um, uh, one of this, why, What is Marriage by Robert George and Gagnon and a couple other guys wrote this book, What is Marriage? And it's, it makes a really uh, great contrast between what's called the revisionist view of marriage and the, conjugal view of marriage. So those are the two, the, that's the contrast. And the revisionist view of marriage is basically this. That marriage is the, uh, is the um, uh, recognition of the most uh, intense emotional relationship that you have with another person. It's the legal recognition of the most intense relationship. So that intense relationship does not necessitate uh, a man and a woman. Do you see? It could be between any two people. 
And probably we bought into that definition of marriage about 50 years ago. And so the idea of, um, of two people being married to each other, apart from the idea of having children, was probably already accepted generally a long time ago. So it was easy for it to you know, happen when it did a couple of months ago. But now that becomes the front upon which the church is persecuted. So we come along and we say, hey, uh, we love babies. <laughs> I mean, that's basically our ethical position on all of these things. We love babies. We think you should protect babies before they're born. And also we think that when people get married, they should have babies. That results should be towards family. And that sounds pretty simple. I like babies. That's my politics. <laughs> I mean, it's not that complicated. And yet, what is that, how does that hurt by the secular world? You hate women. You hate, you hate gay people. You hate. You hate. No, I don't hate. I like babies. <laughs> I'm, uh, what's the problem? But that comes across as hate. And it has to be, you know... Uh, uh, persecuted. So you've already seen people go to jail. We saw uh, Kim Davis go to jail. We saw people lose their businesses, their livelihood, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that's on this border of secularism uh, and Christianity. Now, the old form of persecution, especially that the church first suffered, was because the Christian church confessed Christ. So you remember that the first, like the first 13 or 14 waves of uh, persecution in the church where the Caesars said, hey, you have to come and worship the Caesar and you'd have to offer a pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord. Now, it doesn't seem like much, you know, I mean, it seems like one of these things where you could kind of cross your fingers behind your back and say Caesar is Lord and then go about your business. But the Christians refuse to do it. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. We can't commit this idolatry. We have to confess Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ in your heart as holy, Peter says, uh, in the text we heard the sermon on this morning. So they couldn't do that. And so they would be burned, eaten by lions, you know, be thrown in jail and all sorts of. In other words, they, they were persecuted for confessing Christ. But really, on the border of secularism, the church is not being uh, necessarily persecuted for confessing Christ, but rather for confessing humanity. For saying that we're humans, for saying that that uh, uh, that I'm created in God, that I'm created, well, that flies in the face of evolution. That marriage should be for procreation, well, that flies in the face of tolerance. That children should be protected, well, that flies in the face of choice. And so, really, the persecution. The first wave of persecution was for the third article, for our confessing of Christ. But this wave of persecution, at least from secularism, seems explicitly to be a first article persecution. That we confess that God is the creator of the world. Now, we realize that it's all because of the word. The word that creates is the same word that was incarnate. And that's the same word that's preached, which gives us life. So the devil is always fighting against the word. But it seems like that persecution in our day is especially against the word of God that created the world. Does that make sense? Now, it is good to know that evil is never content to be tolerated. It has to, it has to be in charge. It has to, be, it has to have power. Uh, so that the way that it goes is uh, that evil is always pushing itself 
and there's no neutral ground. And we see that now it's gaining ground. Okay. Now, how do we prepare for that? And here I'd like to end, but I'd like to talk about this. How do we prepare for the persecution that's coming? Because we don't know what it'll look like. And it could be that the Lord could deliver us and rescue us from secularism. He could deliver and rescue us from Islam. He could deliver, it could be that the persecution comes in another form. We never know. But how do you prepare for it? Uh, we have everything already in the liturgy. And we come back to where Job was. Remember how Job knew what God thought of him because he had the sacrifice? Well, that is your greatest treasure in the Word of God and especially in the preaching. And I'm, I'm growing more and more convinced that the divine service is the greatest preparation not only for suffering, but also for persecution and the end for death. Uh, I know that... Uh, so I've been with people... This is really quite incredible. The people that are dying... And I come to them and I bring them the Lord's word and I start to sing to them and they, they could be completely gone. I mean, you know, their mind is just off somewhere totally different. Or maybe Alzheimer's have kind of ravished their mind and they, they, they're not, they, don't, they don't have any idea what's going on. And I start to pray, our Father who art in heaven. And you know what happens? They're praying with me. Or I start to sing the liturgy. Holy. And then they all... Oh, it's there. Or we sing this. Uh, Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. I used to think when I was growing up in the church that when we sang, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, I, what I heard in my mind was, now it is time to go to church's chicken. <laughs> and have lunch with my parents. In other words, I thought, oh, good, church is almost over, right? But that's not what Simeon is teaching us to pray. Now, Lord, now let us now thy servant depart in peace. He was saying, what? I'm ready, I, I, I'm ready to die. Do you, do you know that, I'm, that every time you pray, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace, you're saying, okay, that's enough. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. You can take me now. This is what I hope that when I'm a that that's when I'll die. Is that we do the Lord's Supper, clean everything up, everyone stands up, and then I turn back to the altar and we start to sing the Nunc Dimittis and I fall over dead. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep going. If your pastor dies in the middle of the service, don't stop. Keep singing. Uh, it, I was with a man who died during when I was singing at his deathbed the Nunc Dimittis, and I thought that's the most incredible thing in the world uh, to, to be called home in that. So that when we come to church, we're preparing to die. Now I have another. See you guys. Safe travels. Uh, a friend of mine, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, uh, who um, he fell off the ladder a couple of years ago, or a year, year ago, and he broke his elbow in like five different places, just mangled his elbow, and he said it was the most excruciating pain he'd ever felt in the world. And so he was with, the ambulance got him, and they gave him some sort of pain medication. And, uh, and they took him to an orthopedic doctor's office. And he, didn't, he was totally out of it. And they, put, they drop him off, and he's there, and then they leave. And, uh, and, he, and the nurse comes in, and he says, I need some pain medication and she says, we don't have any pain meds here. And he says, I'm in the wrong place. 
I need to be in the place with pain meds. Uh, and, um, and they said, well, we're sorry. You know, you've got to wait for an hour to see the doctor or whatever. And he's there, and he's just he's screaming. He's in so much pain, and he doesn't know what to do. So he starts singing the liturgy. Lord, have mercy upon me. <laughs> and he says, it is incredible. He says, I was singing the liturgy, and when I was singing the liturgy, now the, the pain subsides. I'm not, it's not, I'm not yelling anymore. I'm, I have some sort of reason. And he says, I stopped, and my elbow would just set on fire. And so I would sing. I just went through the liturgy. He said, I probably had like three or four divine services in it. <laughs> He was singing the words of institution. He was singing the creed. He was singing it all. He was singing it, and it was and it was uh, it was helping him endure the pain. When I go to see people in the hospital, this is the what I always I'm always singing to them. You remember how David, when Saul was being tormented, he would sing to him, and the singing of the hymns it would somehow bring some sort of comfort. Now you know these things. You might not have many hymns memorized, but the hymns that you sing in the divine service you have. They are there for you. It's incredible. So, so the, the, the divine service is suffering for is preparation for death, and it's preparation for suffering, and it's also preparation for persecution. Now, this is when when someone when someone calls you out, and they say, "What do you believe?" and you're you're afraid, you don't know what to say. You know what to say. I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. You've been, you know it. What, what do you confess? What do you pray? If you're thrown in prison and you've got nothing, you see? You can't have a Bible there. You can't have a pastor there. You can't have anything there. You're being, well, you, ha- you have it already. The Lord has given it to you in this great gift of the divine service. He's written these things on your heart so that you know, I, a poor miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities. And now you don't have a pastor. You could hear it yourself, though. I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But you have it there. Lord, have mercy. O Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It's incredible, see? Now, I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the, Lord's, the, the, the divine service, the, the, the liturgy, by saying it's only a preparation because it's more than that. Because every time the Lord gathers us together to His Word and His gifts, He's giving us all the treasures of heaven there. But you, you have that to sustain you in the persecution that is to come. Luther said, he, it's funny that Luther wrote an, an introduction to the Quran, which is really kind of weird. You're like, what was he doing that for? But in an introduction to the Quran, he says, we need to be ready to be captured by the Turks and carried off as prisoners of war. And he says, how do we prepare for that? How do we prepare to be taken captive and to be taken away from Christendom and to be all by ourselves with no church and no pastor and no anything. How am I ready for that? And Luther says, that's why we learn the catechism. <laughs> so we have it memorized so that we know the doctrine and we carry it with us wherever they go. Take their life, goods, fame, child, and wife. They, uh, let these all be gone. They, net of nothing won. The kingdom ours remains. Why? Because the Lord's word has been written on your heart. You have it with you. It cannot be taken away. It's there. And singing it and saying it every Sunday carves it into your heart so that even, even a disease of the mind and suffering of the body cannot take that away. My associate pastor, Flammy, was a Marine before he was a pastor. And one of the things that they do is they train you what to do when you're captured, right? 
and you're, and you're being tortured. And the thing that you say, I can't remember how they go, but you just have to say, uh, I am uh, uh, whatever. You say your name and your rank, and you just say it over and over and over and over and over. Well, this is what we're doing in the churches. We're preparing for this sort of thing. When, you're being, when, the, when the persecution and suffering comes from being Christian, what do you say? I am Brian Wolfmuller. I am baptized. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, my Lord. Do you see? You're being prepared for this sort of thing. Now, that is absolutely wonderful. I was in Israel at the beginning of the summer. I'll, tell, I'll maybe end with this story. I was in Israel at the beginning of the summer, and um, we were walking down the Via Dolorosa, and there was a shopkeeper, and he had a, a sign that said, Free Qurans. And he was kind of, this is like the, uh, this is kind of like the ablaze version of Islam. <laughs> the, the Muslims believe that if you can get someone to say their little creed, their little anti-creed, that you've converted them. You know, so you say these words and you become Muslim. Now, this is dumb. And you could say the words. There's no danger to do it. But that's what they think. So this guy, I said, hey, I'll take one of those free Qurans. In fact, why don't you give me the box of them? Uh, the same Pastor Ketchemeyer thought at one time we should get every Lutheran to call up the Book of Mormon number and say, yeah, I'll take a Book of Mormon, and we'd bankrupt them. <laughs> but anyhow, he, so the guy hands me the Quran and he says, hey, look at this. Why don't you read this? You know, read this first. And it's their little creed, you know, and I know what he's up to. He wants me to, he said, read it to your son. It's beautiful. Most beautiful words ever written. I said, I'm not going to read that. He said, come on, read it. Why not read it? It's beautiful. Look, it's beautiful. Just read it. No, no problem. Just read it. You know, I know I'm not going to read it. He says, why? Why aren't you going to read it? And I didn't know what to say. I, I mean, I knew I shouldn't read it, you know, but I didn't know what to say. So I said, because I'm baptized. I can't read that. I'm baptized. I belong to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he belongs to me. And he went berserk. He said, oh, you're one of those guys. You believe in three gods. It's such an abomination. You know, Allah will bring vengeance on you and all this sort of stuff. And Carrie said, let's get out of here. <laughs> and I said, and I thought to myself, I don't need to get out of here. I'm baptized. <laughs> I've got everything I need in the Lord's name. And he has me. You see? So, uh, so if persecution comes, if suffering comes, if the devil comes, if, if the, all the world, you know, devils, all the world should feel eager to devour me, I'm baptized. And I have this promise, not only of life, but of life everlasting in the name of Jesus. And that, that hope, that confidence pulls us through all the suffering of this life. Like St. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this life are not even worthy of being compared to the glory of the life to come. And that glory is yours. Amen? Well, God's peace be with you. Thank you so much. Oh, you got it. Thank you. Well, I was not aware that we had a bank to rob, but apparently we do.